New Zealand is a country well known for its breathtaking and varied landscape. The nation is also known for its lush green wilderness, the production of rich aromatic honey, and its huge population of sheep, over five times more sheep than people. It is also deemed to be incredibly safe, so it may come as a surprise to learn that there are many high-profile unsolved cases in its history. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be exploring two horrific unsolved cases from New Zealand. Mona Blades. Mona Elizabeth Blades was just 18 years old when she vanished while attempting to hitchhike from Hamilton, a city on the North Island of New Zealand. Her case is one of the country's longest running unsolved disappearances and was extensively covered by the media at the time. In recent years, the case has been reopened by a cold case squad, but still, answers in her vanishing have remained elusive. On May 31st, 1975, the first day of the Queen's birthday long weekend, Mona intended on hitchhiking from her hometown of Hamilton to Hastings. She wanted to surprise her nephew for his birthday and bought him a set of colorful tumblers as a gift. At the time, Mona was living with her sister, Lillian, her brother-in-law, Tom, and her baby niece, Angela. In the morning, Tom dropped his sister-in-law off on Cambridge Road. This was the last time anyone in the family saw Mona. Since the trip was meant to be a surprise, nobody knew that Mona was coming to Hastings. As a result, it wasn't until three days later that the teenager was reported missing when she didn't return home as planned. While there isn't much recorded about the original investigation, what we do know is this. Authorities spent six months and 5,000 hours on the initial search, and over 500 suspects were investigated. Despite the best efforts of law enforcement, not a single shred of evidence was found, which would indicate the fate of Mona Blades. What information they did receive, however, was an abundance of different sightings all across the town. The most notable of these witness sightings came from a truck driver, who claimed to have seen Mona getting into an orange Datsun 120Y station wagon at around 10 o'clock that morning. Several other locals observed a similar vehicle heading off the highway and stopping on a rural street named Matia Road in Taupo. Another witness, a fencing contractor, saw the vehicle about 200 meters down the same road. He noticed that a woman matching Mona's description was sitting in the back while a white middle-aged man was in the driver's seat. When the witness passed the vehicle again a short time later, he saw that it was empty. This lead about the orange Datsun seemed like a huge break in the case and was treated as such. Investigators spent much of their time focusing on this tip-off, which may have been a detriment to the case. In 2018, the case was featured on television New Zealand's Cold Case Program during which skilled detectives revisited all the case files in an attempt to find new leads. 
Those who re-examined the files believed that authorities had focused much too heavily on the Datsun, and as a result, had missed several other leads that may have proved valuable. They also believed that police may have misled witnesses by using an outdated picture of Mona. In the photo used by law enforcement, Mona had blonde curls, but at the time of her disappearance, she was sporting a mullet hairstyle. Not only this, but it was concluded that Mona had spent longer in the town of Taupo than originally thought, and perhaps never left it alive. And it was also discovered that the truck driver who'd reported the orange Datsun sighting changed his story on multiple occasions, suggesting that he was influenced by what he heard or read about the case. Several witness sightings were ignored in favor of the orange Datsun lead. One shop worker who knew Mona personally claimed that they saw her getting into a darkish blue-green station wagon, which drove off in the direction of the Napier-Taupo Highway. The witness claimed the 18-year-old was with another female hitchhiker who joined her in the car. Another sighting came from someone who'd spoken with a woman who'd identified herself as Mona Blades. The woman was seen in the early afternoon hours of May 31st at the Spa Hotel in Taupo. Afterwards, she was observed getting into a red Toyota station wagon. While the cold case team believed that Mona met with people she knew in Taupo and left with them, other detectives have suggested that she was perhaps abducted and killed by members of a gang who were traveling to Wellington that weekend. Reportedly, the 18-year-old was friends with several people who were part of a notorious biker gang named Highway 61. To add to this, in 2018, a man who wished to remain anonymous approached the Rotura Daily Post and claimed that a friend, who died in 2013, told him that Highway 61 were involved with Mona's vanishing. The gang members reportedly spoke about the abduction a year later and said they had killed her afterwards. Apparently, a red Toyota was traveling with the gang, and observers saw two people carrying a rolled-up piece of carpet to the back of the vehicle. It's unclear if this is the same car that was seen by the witness who had seen Mona at the Spa Hotel. The biker gang are not the only suspects in the case, however. A man named John Freeman was investigated shortly after the inquiry began, when authorities discovered that he had rented an orange Datsun on the weekend of the incident. Two weeks later, when police announced publicly they were looking for an orange Datsun, Freeman shot and wounded a university student before pulling the trigger on himself. It's unknown if Freeman was in any way involved with Mona's vanishing. Another man who was investigated is a man named Charlie Hughes from Hamilton, who has been interviewed three times since the 1970s and has given a DNA sample. He has maintained his innocence throughout the decades and has publicly expressed his frustration about being considered a suspect. In 2004, investigators were told about an alleged shallow grave bearing Mona's name in the garage of a home in Huntley. The name had been inscribed on concrete six years earlier and was reportedly supposed to be a joke. The former homeowner later apologized to the Blades family. In 2012, police dug up the concrete floor of a house in Kawerau, which had once belonged to a traffic officer who died in 2009. The officer had been accused by a fellow policeman of abducting and killing Mona. The accuser, Tony Muller, claims that he had his suspicions for a long time. He apparently sent the authorities a compilation of information in 2011. 
A year later, authorities turned up at the house to search beneath the floor of the laundry room. Muller was convinced there was a body beneath the concrete and witnessed law enforcement's drill 80 centimeters and then probe a further 80. However, nothing of interest was found beneath the floor. Despite this, Muller is convinced there is a body buried in the house, although he now believes it's buried beneath the stairwell. According to a New Zealand Herald article from 2012, the homeowners also believe this to be true, but authorities are unable to excavate without evidence. Despite the case being reopened and the new investigation beginning in 2018, Mona's case remains unsolved. Kirsty Bentley Born in Christchurch on January 18th of 1983 to Sid and Jill Bentley, Kirsty Bentley was described as an honest, vibrant, and compassionate girl by her mother. She was, by all accounts, an ordinary teenager who loved the Backstreet Boys, her new boyfriend Graham, and hanging out with her friends. She had a strong creative flair and was well-liked by her classmates at Ashburton College. Her brutal murder in 1998 left locals in shock and disbelief and authorities baffled. Her unsolved case is one of New Zealand's biggest and most enduring mysteries. On December 31st of 1998, 15-year-old Kirsty spent the morning shopping with one of her best friends, Leanne, in their hometown of Ashburton. The pair had lunch at McDonald's around midday and later stopped in at a KFC for a drink. Kirsty was returned home by Leanne's sister at around 2.30 p.m. Upon entering her house, Kirsty was greeted by her 19-year-old brother, John. The pair got along well, and John told his sister that she had missed a call from her boyfriend, who asked her to call back. According to phone records, Kirsty called Graham at around 2.38 p.m., but was met with his answer service. She left him a message asking him to get in touch and then decided to take the family dog, Abby, out for a walk. According to her family, this was normal for Kirsty. The 15-year-old enjoyed taking Abby out for a walk to pass the time. John has mentioned in recent interviews that he doesn't remember Kirsty saying goodbye, but he remembers hearing the front gate closing. Shortly thereafter, at 3.05 p.m., a neighbor saw Kirsty walking past their house with Abby in tow. Meanwhile, Graham called the Bentley residence at around 4.30 p.m., only to find that his girlfriend was out once again. It was at this point that John realized his sister still wasn't home. He noted that her usual route did not take her away from the house for such a long period of time. When the pair's mother, Jill, returned from work at around 5.15 p.m., she checked with Graham to make sure Kirsty hadn't gone over there. When he confirmed that she hadn't, the mother of two headed out to search for her 15-year-old daughter, taking her usual dog-walking route along the Ashburton River. Growing more anxious, Jill eventually returned home. Back at the house, Jill and John decided to wait until 6 p.m. before searching again. They thought she might turn up while they waited. While John headed out to look for his little sister, her father, Sid, returned home. At 6.20 p.m., Sid called the police. Both the local community and law enforcement came together to help the Bentley family search for the 15-year-old. They spent the whole night looking for Kirsty or any evidence that might indicate where she was, but came away empty-handed. The next morning, the official search and rescue began. At 10 a.m., the dog, Abby, 
was found tied to a tree near the river. This same area had been searched the night before, but it's possible she was missed due to the thick foliage nearby. Just minutes later, searchers uncovered a pair of underwear and a pair of boxers that were later confirmed as belonging to Kirsty. They were not torn and did not look as if they'd been forcibly removed, although it is a tragic possibility they were removed after her potential death. Over the next 16 days, the Ashburton area was heavily searched. Troops from the Burnham military camp were even sent to aid the manhunt. On January 17th, 1999, just one day before what would have been Kirsty's 16th birthday, her body was found by two men in the Camp Gully area of Rakaia, about 40 kilometers or nearly 25 miles away from Ashburton. Due to the summer heat, her remains were in an advanced state of decomposition and her body had to be formally identified via dental records. The body had been placed in the fetal position in a patch of overgrown scrub and Kirsty's black tank top and blue sarong were still on her body. She had been wearing both the last time she was seen. Her remains had been covered in a layer of branches and leaves. An extensive examination of the scene began and continued over the next several days. Law enforcement took plaster casts of the tire tracks in the area and eventually appealed for information from the public, requesting that anyone who saw any vehicles in the area at the time come forward. They also asked for any cannabis growers to come forward if they had seen anything strange. The area in which Kirsty's body was found was known to be used by cannabis growers. Kirsty had suffered blunt force trauma to the right side of the back of her head, which had fractured her skull. The coroner believed that she'd have died shortly after being struck. Due to the state of decomposition, it could not be determined whether or not Kirsty was sexually assaulted, but there appeared to be no signs of a struggle, and her top and sarong were unmoved and intact. Authorities believe that the body was placed in the Camp Gully area on the night she was slain. Over the two decades since Kirsty's demise, there have been hundreds of suspects, many of whom have not been formally eliminated from the inquiry. Soon after the investigation was launched into the murder, the media reported that both John and Sid Bentley were considered suspects, which authorities later confirmed. Both denied being involved. An examination carried out at the family's home, which included luminol testing, gave the police nothing of any value. However, Kirsty's father, Sid, who was noted by authorities to be an alcoholic, was unable to provide law enforcement with a solid alibi. At first, he claimed that he'd been in Christchurch and Littleton at the time his daughter disappeared, but he later claimed that he'd hit his head on a cupboard door and had forgotten he'd been in Ashburton for part of the day. Even today, Sid's exact whereabouts at the time of Kirsty's vanishing are unknown. Many members of the family, including his ex-wife Jill, believed he was too embarrassed to admit whatever it was he was doing, but that he wasn't involved with the abduction of his daughter or her subsequent murder. Many online sleuths have stated their belief that Sid was in some way, shape or form involved with his daughter's demise. According to reports, he doted on Kirsty as a child, but their relationship became difficult as she entered her teens. Another peculiar detail about Sid is that there were several witnesses who claimed to have seen the father of two at a hotel at around 4 p.m. on the day she vanished. 
This has led forum users to suggest that perhaps he was cheating on his wife or was involved in a relationship with another man. Sid is often described as a stoic and prideful Englishman, leading many to think he must have been doing something that he thought was extremely damaging to his reputation or embarrassing to have hidden it from investigators. All the way up until his death in 2015, Sid believed that his whereabouts had nothing to do with anyone else because he knew he did not take the life of his own child, and that was enough. Another reason some believe Sid was involved was that Abby had been carefully tied up to a tree. Amateur sleuths have wondered why a cold-blooded killer would tie Abby up instead of killing her too. This has led to the theory that whoever took Kirsty was somebody close enough to the family that they didn't want to hurt their dog. A retired investigator who was asked to look at the case agreed with this idea. He said the perpetrator was likely somebody close to Kirsty based on the nature of the crime and the way her body was left. However, others have suggested the idea that Sid had helped John cover up the crime or that Sid was not involved, but somehow knew more than he was letting on, and that perhaps he even knew the name of his daughter's killer. However, these notions are just speculation and have no evidence to back them up. Another line of inquiry followed by investigators was that of a distinct green comma van with the registration plate EP9888. The vehicle was described as being a 1961 model set up to be used as a camper. It had the distinctive comma badge on the front and was either blue or a faded blue-green. It had been last registered with the New Zealand Transport Agency in 1995. The van was extremely rare and as few as two matching its description were believed to have ever been in New Zealand. While lots of people came forward with information, most were incorrect about the vehicles they'd seen being comma vans. It was easy for the police to rule them out since the vehicle was so unique. An experienced mechanic who caught wind of this request came forward to tell police that he'd seen a similar vehicle around the time of Kirsty's vanishing. Due to his job and the rarity of the vehicle, the witness was able to describe the van in great detail. There were several reports of the van being seen in Ashburton and Camp Gully in the weeks before the 15-year-old's body was found. However, no further leads were ever discovered and the exact van was never located. Aside from looking for the van, authorities also distributed flyers asking for information about a girl seen near the vehicle on Chalmers Avenue, close to where Kirsty vanished. The girl was known to dairy owners in the suburb of Netherby as a customer, but she never came forward. Her identity and connection with the van remain unknown to this day. Other suspects in Kirsty's case include a man who committed a double homicide in 2014 and an unidentified man who was considered a suspect from the start of the investigation. Russell John Tully executed two staff members at the Ashburton Work and Income Office in 2014. Reportedly, he was known to camp around the Ashburton River area around the time Kirsty vanished. However, he has since been ruled out of the investigation as he was able to prove that he was in Nelson at the time of the 15-year-old's disappearance, a place which is 251 miles from Ashburton. After Sid's death in 2015, an unidentified woman came forward to tell police that she suspected her ex-boyfriend of being involved with Kirsty's demise. 
Reportedly, this man had been interviewed at the beginning of the investigation and denied involvement, but his ex-girlfriend claimed that he had admitted to her several times while drunk that he had committed the heinous crime. The ex-girlfriend was interviewed along with the suspect originally. She said that at the time, they had only just started dating and she had no reason to doubt him. Over time, however, she realized that he knew more than what was made available to the public. However, the detective inspector in charge of the case, Greg Merton, has said that the man had already been investigated and he would not comment on the woman's allegations. In 2018, the underwear found near Abby and the leash she was tied up with were both sent for DNA testing along with several other items. However, the results failed to bring any new information to the table. Kirsty's funeral was held at St. Stephen's Anglican Church in Ashburton on January 25th, 1999. It was attended by over 500 mourners. Kirsty's body was cremated and her ashes sealed in a steel urn, which was buried in a specially planted memorial garden at the family home. After Sid's death in 2015, the urn was transferred to Jill. In 2018, authorities announced that John and Sid Bentley were no longer considered suspects in the case, a relief to John, who now lives in Australia. Sid and Jill divorced in 2000, although surprisingly, not because of the media circus that surrounded them or even their grief over the loss of their daughter, but because Jill had, quote, grown to dislike the alcoholic I was living with. The split affected John's relationship with his father, who began to spread rumors about Jill's new partner. The pair fell out when John confronted Sid about his behavior. Jill remarried in 2008 to Noel Peachley, the pair live a quiet, reclusive life with their rescue cat, Tara, and Kirsty's collection of plush toys, whom Noel refers to affectionately as the boys. Jill still maintains a good relationship with John. Kirsty's childhood friend, Leanne, who was with her on the morning of December 31st, has claimed that she has her own suspicions about what happened that day, although she does not elaborate in any of her interviews. As of 2018, Kirsty's case is still open and active, yet remains unsolved. If you have any information pertaining to either case we've covered in today's episode, please contact New Zealand Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. You can also support us on Patreon to have access to behind the scenes content and early access to our full length documentaries. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.